two, you guys can leave though. I know you were moving your stuff, which is fine. If you can take your stuff. <laughs> I'm sorry. Was, good job, Andrew. You did exactly what you were supposed to do. <clears throat> uh, there were just a couple things during that worship that I wanted to lean into a little bit. Uh, the first one was, it's ringing a little bit, like it's a little hot up here. I don't, yeah, that's good. The first one, I think it was the first song, uh, Andrew, Justin, correct me if I'm wrong, it said something about, I'm grateful for the wilderness. Yeah, yeah this is my first thought to that. <laughs> <laughs> which seems very sacrilegious, uh, very ungodly, but I think most of us resonate with that from an authentic point of view. Who invites the wilderness? Who enjoys the wilderness? Oh God, please bring a wilderness into my life. No one thinks that. Only from a posture of faith can we say the wilderness is good. If the wilderness brings about a deeper, it's still ringing a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what he means to me. It's the only reason. But wilderness in and of itself, we've been there in a lot of ways. This, this last 18 months has been a wilderness like, like in many, for many of us, none, like none other we've faced. The loss of loved ones, is a, is a deep wilderness. Financially difficult times are a deep wilderness. Fractured relationship it creates wilderness. And those wildernesses are, by and large, yours to manage, right? While the rest of the world is kind of going on. There's plenty of people that can commiserate with your particular wilderness because what befalls us is not uncommon. <laughs> but this last 18 months has been a wilderness that the, 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 whole, the whole planet was, is, was and is enduring. And it seems like it's going to ramp up again, right? This, this has been hard for the church, not just ours, but any church. It's been hard for people to be without the significant benefit of gathering, connecting, praying together, being together. It's created, it's damaged us in some ways. It's hurt us. It's We have a lot of recovering to do. The wilderness, if and when that pandemic ends, the wilderness is in some ways going to go on. Lots of people have gravitated away from the church during the pandemic and are expected not to come back. They have wandered into a wilderness that is going to be damaging and even harder to come back from. So it was good to sing about 
how God redeems the wilderness, how he brings the wilderness, like he's behind it at times. So we should never, the wilderness. It may be what we feel, but we believe that there's a sovereign God who is in control or permitting, which is the same as in control, what goes on and redeeming it and using it for his good and his glory. So there's that. And then the other song was, you said, I think the line was, um, I'm no longer a slave to fear, but I'm a child of God. That was resonating with me because it is what we're talking about in Romans. What it means to be established in Christ. I am no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God. What's important to remember is no longer being a slave to fear doesn't mean that you don't have the freedom to live in fear. You're not a slave to fear, but that should, it shouldn't be confusing to you if you read that and you think, I'm a Christian, but I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, you can be afraid as a Christian. You're just not enslaved to it. But you can still be there and you can still choose it, actually. But to understand what it means to be a child of God, to no longer be enslaved to fear, but to be adopted by God, to be a child of God, is a new choice that we don't otherwise have, right? To be a, we, you're a slave to fear, you're a slave to sin. This is what Paul is teaching us all through, the, all through Romans. It's taught all through the New Testament. You are a slave to those things. You have no choice. People have no choice. Humanity has no choice but to be afraid and to live a life that is displeasing to God. No choice. In Christianity, Jesus... doesn't simply free us from that enslavement and free us in and of ourselves. Like, we don't just become just free. It's a, it's a, it gives you a new choice. But there's only one other choice. Like, you're not really all that free in one sense, right? You're, you're, you're disenslaved from sin and fear if you choose to be, let me say this in a sensational way, enslaved to Jesus. That's the choice. To leave your, to leave your enslavement here to become committed to an enslaved to Christ. I don't know, many of us wouldn't, would say, well, that's not freedom. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, but that's the gospel. You didn't have a choice. Now you are free to make a choice, but the only other choice, other than to go back to that one, is to go to this one. There's only two masters, and you're going to serve one of them. But now you're free to choose the one who sets you free. Try to 
Try to grasp that. That's what Paul says. All right, so probably should play this video. It's important. It seems to deviate from the line of thinking we're on right now. Um, it's about giving and finances. We have found ourselves in a predicament. Here's the predicament. We found a building on the northwest side. Yeah, it's good. It's very good. Very good. We'll be in it in the next two weeks to three months. <clears throat> we don't know. We, we, our architect's going to go in this Wednesday, and we're going to find out if it's up to code. And if it's up to code, we're going to be in it. If it's not up to code, we've got to find a contractor. Can anybody find a contractor right now? Nobody. You can't even find raw materials. <clears throat> so we're beholden to the condition of that building and how quickly the city will give us occupancy. But we, are, we will be signing the lease at the end of this week or the first of next week, but we already have a handshake, and we're going to be in this space. Here's the predicament. We can't afford it. <laughs> we really can't afford it. Unless we dip into our savings, which God has been gracious to allow us to accrue. And we will. Our giving trajectory right now will, this isn't unique to us, will leave us at an operational shortfall at the end of the year, which we have never experienced. Combine that shortfall with the added expense of the next building, and we will deplete our savings by the end of the year <laughs> and be unable to operate according to the budgets that we require. We need God. There's no better place for a church to be. All I want is to discover God's way forward. That's all I want. And guess what? We're going to find it. We are going to find it. We're going to find it. In the meantime, we're pushing all of our chips metaphorically in and saying, God, this is where you've called us to go. You have given us the resources to do it. <clears throat> They're in savings, but we're going to push them in and we're trusting you. And this is what I think is going to happen once we get to this space of where we've been in the past with two locations, giving and attendance and those sorts of things will rebound, at least to some degree, and give us a new trajectory. That's the hope. In the meantime, it depends on us, those that have remained, to carry the load through the end of the year um, at Vista. And so this video is me talking to you about sort of the concept of generosity and finances. So we'll play that and then we'll finish up a little bit more in Romans chapter 6. <laughs> We're all in this together. Let's see what he does. Yeah. Let's see what he does. Let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. All right. Next week, August 15th, 
There are two services, one here and one in the Northwest. Please watch your email and your text messaging and that sort of thing. Make sure you're in that loop so you can get the times and the locations exactly right. Have a lot of grace for the staff right now. It is extremely hard to find a place that we fit in while we're waiting for that building. <laughs> it's also difficult to know actually when to do it. So we are winging this thing right, right now, okay? We are not back, we're not functioning like a highly, you know, finely oiled humming machine or top. We are just trying to get through the end of this pandemic and get ourselves back to something that seems relatively normal. Uh, August 22nd, there is one service, and it'll be in the Northwest. And on August 29th, there is one service, and it'll be in the Northwest. And on September 5th, we're going to be off. And on September 12th, God willing, we are launching into two simultaneous services again for the rest of time. Okay. Woo! All right. What time is it? Whew. Okay. What time did we start? 9.30? Okay. <laughs> How much time do I have left? 11 minutes? Oh, my. What? What? Someone, I have a, what do you call that? Comedians say, heckler. I have a heckler. Okay. <clears throat> this concept of which I have written out in great detail to try to explain to you isn't really that complicated. So, honestly, I ought to be able to do this in five or ten minutes. Here's the first big picture. God-centric worldviews, religious postures and practices are eroding generation by generation. Okay? Every generation that comes along is getting less teaching and less example and, and less doctrine and less value about what it is to be God-centric. Less and less. Every generation is increasingly impoverished for the transcendent. And so they are left to find the transcendent, to find connection with, I'm going to say, the transcendent, some kind of purpose, some kind of meaning that resonates with their eternal soul. You see what I'm saying? Each generation is getting less direction, less context for a God-centered worldview and the religious practices that come along with that. But they have an eternal soul that needs to connect with the transcendent. We use this quote all the time. C.S. Lewis famously reiterated it. He gets credit for it, but I don't think he said it. You don't have a soul. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. You're a soul at the core. You're not a body at the core. You're not physical at the core. You're a soul. And that soul resonates with God. It resonates with something transcendent. When God is not in the picture, your soul is still got this transcendent longing. It's exactly why people, Christians or non-Christians, say things like, something's wrong with the world. Why would you ever say that? 
If there wasn't some God impulse, some transcendent impulse, some beauty, some good that comes worth somewhere else, you would otherwise you just look around the world and say what? You would say, well, it is what it is. It just is. This is what it is. But there's something deep within us that resonates with God, that understands, that hears from God, that is made in the image of God and makes us go, something's wrong. Something's just not right. I'm sure you've looked at something, you've experienced something, and you thought, this is not right. And you've never been taught that, but it's, you don't think it's right. And you're right. It isn't right. Have you ever thought to yourself, I'm looking for that mate, that job, that path that I was meant for. Or have you ever thought, I'm not on the path that I'm, that I'm meant for. What are you talking about? Says who? Meant for? Meant by who? What? That's a transcendent thought. That's a, that's a, that's a God orientation. That's something going on in the soul that is connecting with something greater than me. That I have a purpose within this life that is beyond what I see. All of those kinds of thoughts are rooted in a context that there's not only something bigger than me going on, but there's something powerful within it that has the ability to change and to do things within it, and that I have a personal place in it. But back to my point, without God or the associated religion, there is no one for young people to turn to, nowhere to go, no way to find their place in this transcendent space that their soul leans toward and yearns for. So what happens? We see this happening all over the place in increasing measure. People are trying, those that are far from God are trying to generate their own transcendent context within which to resolve the anxiety in their soul. We're trying to create meaningful movements and things and causes in this world that give us that sense of transcendence. Most, if not all, of the successful pseudo-transcendent movements are rooted in the universal truth that the world is broken. Each generation comes along and discovers the evidence that the world is deeply broken and they feel like they're the first ones to have discovered that. The Bible tells us the world has been deeply and universally broken from the very beginning of humanity. But there is something that resonates with that truth. The movements that people are attaching themselves today today have an element of deep brokenness that they're identifying within all of humanity. And the ones we connect with the most are the ones that are deeply personal to me. And either the ways that I am broken or that the way the broken world has impacted me. And the most successful of all of the pseudo-transcendency movements have an event or a person 
that exist in the center of that movement as the icon or the evidence of the truth of the whole thing. You can see that true in the, in the, in the, in the movement to, to figure out and get through the AIDS crisis in the 90s. There's always events and people that stand as icons. You can see it in the, in the race um, causes. You can see it in the gender causes. You can see it in the, in the power causes. My, my point, I don't know if these examples set you in the wrong direction or if they suggest that anything in particular, but I, I'm simply using those examples um, uh, not to diminish the, the importance of those, uh, there, there are things to be addressed, and, and not just those areas, in all sorts of areas, and issues of poverty, and uh, financial difficulties, and all sorts of things. My, my only point is to use them as examples to illustrate the deeply personal and far-reaching causes are being used as a substitute for what cannot be substituted. Our redemption and our connection with God and the purpose and the meaning in life that he alone brings. Are you with me? We cannot allow the things of this world to take the place of what has nothing that can take its place. God is the transcendent one. He is the creator. He is the ordainer of all things. And our soul has been created in his image. No other cause, no matter how important or transcendent it is, can replace what we can only find from God. So why am I going into all that? Here's why. If things go well, God's going to keep us around as a church. I, I live in the, fully in the reality that my calling to follow him and to lead the church is temporary. It goes away when he calls me away. This church goes away when he decides this church is going to go away. God's in charge of his church. His church is always expanding, always alive, always on the move, but the local expressions of his church are at his behest. But for now, it would seem as though God has and continues to call us to be an expression of him in our community. And if that keeps going, we have to make it crystal clear we have to be absolutely sure that we are a church that is about his will and at its core about the gospel. I think the church is dangerously close to losing its ability to introduce Jesus to those who are far from God. I think the church as we know it as a Sunday morning gathering expression of biblical teaching and prayerful music will always be in some form. It will always be. 
It will always be valid. It will always be good. It will always be vital to the church for us to gather. And the church will probably always gather. But the church has shown throughout history that it can gather and fail to be what it is intended to be to the world. And the threat of that looms larger than maybe it ever has in my lifetime. America has fallen to what most Western civilizations have already succumbed to, and that is a post-Christian, post-church society. Both Christian and non-Christian statisticians and, and those who do surveys, Pew and Barna, to, to lead the way, have identified this fact that the Protestant and Catholic faith make up a share of U.S. citizenry that is now less than 50%. That's officially post-Christian, post-church. Below 50% identify as Christian. And the nuns, not the ones dressed in black and white with the habits, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, those that, have, that, have, that no longer affiliate with any Christian organization, any Christian uh, church or denomination, have doubled in 10 years. We live in a post-Christian, post-church society. That means those who don't have an inherited God-centric worldview or a discipline of church attendance are no longer searching for religious institutions, clergy, or a Sunday morning experience to answer the question of their soul, to fix their pain, to right the wrongs in the world, or connect the dots of what fails to make sense in life. So if the church that is gathering is expecting those who need to find God and are far from God are going to come to them to figure it out, we're lying to ourselves. They have a transcendent impulse they have been marginalized from God and from religion in their upbringing. The church has failed on many levels to stay relevant to what is going on in the world and to be engaged. And it leaves them wanting and vulnerable to the manipulative messages of those who are, or from those who benefit in terms of power or finance with related, as it relates to the latest social causes. Completely butchered that sentence. Do you understand what I'm saying? Those people have an impulse for the transcendent. They have an impulse for God. They no longer believe the church or the clergy or, or a, a Christian experience is going to solve that. So they are susceptible to the messaging of those who benefit financially or in terms of power as it relates to the causes, the very real causes that need to be addressed in the world. And they are called into those spaces to find life and purpose and meaning in places to sacrifice their life and their finances for these causes. And they resonate with that and they go there because they don't find that call relevant coming out of the church? And the answer isn't for the church to be a compelling movement among those other current cultural movements. 
nor, which is becoming a fairly predictable thing, is the solution for the church to co-opt a particular movement and make it theirs. That's not the solution. To take on the cause as a central purpose of the church. The church, don't, don't misunderstand me, the church needs to be involved in ministering and caring and taking the gospel to these broken places of injustice and allow God to do something through us and with us in those spaces, but they are not the church's central cause. You remember the Tower of Babel back in Genesis chapter 11? This is what the people of God were doing. The the people in general were doing. They were building something in order to try to reach the heavens and to find their way to God. This impulse for the transcendent has always been there and we've always tried to build our way to God. It's a very natural thing. We're trying to fight gravity and get up to heaven. But God has come near. It is not the core mission of the church to build itself or to ride some effort toward heaven. The vibrant, healthy church will be as Paul is imploring us throughout the book of Romans to be established in Christ. Jesus said it straight away. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and you will despise the other, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. The things that need to happen in this world, the things that we long for personally and societally come along with the church that seeks him first. To become established in Christ. Living according to that resonating with deep, deeply needy souls in search of good and decent places, but have yet to find the ultimate. We should resonate with that, but as a core ministry, draw people to Christ and to be established into Christ and to understand what it is. For the true Christian, no cause other than the gospel, can be core, no matter how deeply personal it is to you or anyone else. No political cause, no race issue, no civic issue, no social issue, no health-related issue, no financial issue, no poverty issue. None of that can be core. While we are engaged in those necessary ministries and injustices of our current world, our cause must be singular and central, the gospel. And herein lies my deepest concern for the church. Large and growing portions of it don't understand the gospel, haven't embraced the gospel, 
And so they can't live out the gospel. The church itself, Christians themselves, are out of touch with the gospel. I'm seven minutes over, and I'm just getting ready to dive into Romans chapter 6. So we will do this next week. Let me tease you with this. Gosh, this is such good stuff. If I must admit it, I must say it's not me. It's been a labor of love to bring this together for you. And it's so disappointing not to put it out there for you. But we will. Here's the teaser. When was the last time a non-Christian complained about your faith or questioned your faith based on their understanding that your faith promotes immoral behavior? <laughs> when was the last time somebody came to you and said, I've heard about your Christian faith. I've heard what you've been saying about faith. I think it's ridiculous that you think I think, it's, I, I think what you're saying promotes immoral behavior. When was the last time you as a Christian were, conf were, were, were confronted with an accusation that you promote immoral behavior? Ever? Well, you should. You should get that criticism. The gospel message should garner the criticism that you promote immoral behavior. You know how I know that? That's the criticism that came first. How else do you explain this very rebuttal that Paul is speaking to? This is what people were saying in the earliest church explanations in the earliest, the, the purest form of Christianity, this is what people were saying. Shall we go on sinning then so that grace may... Are you saying, Christian, that we could just sin? Is that what you're saying? That was the confusion. And that should still be the confusion. This is my hook for you to come back next week. The gospel was somehow misunderstood to be license for sin. And it should still be misunderstood that way. If we're preaching and living grace, it should come under heavy criticism. And you know where that criticism mostly come from? The church. Because the church, by and large, believes that its testimony to the world is its good behavior. And that is not the gospel. That's not the gospel. The invitation to Christianity isn't that you can become a good person. In very sensational way, the message is, in Christ, <laughs> in, 
in Christ. The immorality of your life does not change the approval of God. In Christ, the consequences of not only your behavior, but your sick heart the eternal consequences of the realities of who we are are no longer held against us by God, nor will they ever. That is enormously difficult to get your head around. It seems irresponsible and wrong. But I believe until we get a grip on that and we find a way to convey the realities of the gospel into the world, they will no longer be enticed by this false gospel that says, if you come to church, your life will get better. In actuality, if you come to church, if you come to Christ, if you come to the gospel, you are going to first be critically disappointed. You're going to be desperately discouraged because the gospel, the real purpose for the law, God's holiness, sheds a light into our life. And shows us what we do not want to see. And then, and then the gospel says, you don't have to live like that anymore. Jesus says, I'll send the Spirit of God into you in such a way that it changes the way your heart is compelled toward sin, and instead, it will start to be compelled toward me. Back to what we said initially. Jesus says, I will disentangle you, I will disensnare you, I will free you and your heart from its only option, which is to sin, and I will give you the option to serve me, to serve Jesus, which changes everything. That is where we have to find ourselves comfortable to communicate and not only comfortable communicate, living within. See how I'm scrolling through all these pages?
Understanding, this is my last statement, I promise. It's, it's three sentences for those of you that are very precise. This is my last paragraph. <clears throat> Understanding that Christianity is not at its core. This is step one. Understanding that Christianity is not at its core behavioral is a huge leap we've got to get a grip on. That we cannot lead people to Christ through our good behavior. It doesn't work. And maybe I'm just saying the same thing three different ways. It is not our behavior. Try to, try to try, think about this for a week. As a Christian, it is not your behavior that defines you. Don't you think that's the Christianity that's been promoted by and large throughout our existence? That Christianity is defined by your behavior. How do you know if someone's a Christian? By their behavior. That's not the right answer. And Paul is telling us that over and over and over again. More next week. God, help us. Help us, God. This is a sincere prayer. Help us, God, to understand your gospel. As we read Romans, as we read the words of Jesus, help us to see that the cornerstone, the cornerstone is your grace and your mercy. That there is now no condemnation. Help us, God. God, if we don't get that, we have nothing to offer but just another pseudo-transcendent movement. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Appreciate you, church. Love you. Thank you for hanging in there. I've been praying for you.